0: Well, good morning. good morning. Wow, what a start to our service already today. Um, I, uh, I am so glad to be with you today. You look great. So good job. I, uh, I was away last week. Um, there are, I don't know if you know this, there are places in the continental United States where today the sun is shining and it's warm. And last week I was in one of those places. And so it was a wonderful time uh, visiting with my wife's family in, uh, in Tennessee, but we are back. It was good to be away, but it was good to come home Come home too. Good to know that God has given our church such a capable team of leaders and teachers. A special thank you to Pastor Tyler, who last week, uh, what we would say in college is he shucked the corn. And so uh, thank you, Tyler, for uh, teaching last week and blessing the congregation. Big question now is, is all right, so what's next? Um, that's a good question. I actually wrestle with that one a lot. Um, Before the Easter season, we were in a series uh, through the prophetic book of Daniel, and some of you might not know this because maybe you just didn't pay attention, but we hadn't finished that book. Um, We still have two chapters to go there. Uh, Chapter 11, which was up next, is arguably the most challenging uh, chapter to preach. Um, I feel like I keep saying that week after week, and that's because it keeps getting harder and harder. Um, one commentator I found said that chapter 11 is suitable for seminaries and classroom instruction but is altogether unsuitable for preaching. So that's going to be fun, right? Um, I tried to pawn it off on Pastor Duke because he'd been through the Bible like 600 times. And I said, hey, Pastor Duke, you're preaching on Palm Sunday. Chapter 11 is up next. And he said, and I quote, what? that's the hardest chapter. I think I'm going to go to like something else. So um, He did. Tyler wanted no part of it. He, was, uh, he went running for the hills. He's like, let me just talk about the empty tomb. And so here I am. Uh, I drew the short straw, and I feel like I'm a little bit caught. I, uh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna lie to you. I consider just moving on, because I think three of you would have realized that we had not finished, and the rest of you would have been like, wait, we were in Daniel? What? Uh, So I thought about just moving on, but I, if you know anything about me, I am more neurotic than I let on, and if I leave that unfinished, that's, I'm not gonna be able to sleep. So we, here we are, Daniel chapter 11. Uh, Like I said, I'm dancing around up here, not teaching, um, because it is one of the most challenging passages in the uh in the scriptures. so we're going to turn to Daniel 11 I'm going to make a stab at it you're going to hold your opinions to yourself and tell me about how I did at a much much later time so until July you're not allowed to say anything about how I handled this but after July feel free to send all of your comments to mandy at newtownroad.org all right here's some things we need to keep in mind as we look at Daniel chapter 11 in the closing three chapters of Daniel, chapter 10, 11, and 12, are really one long prophetic unit, which makes this a little more difficult than in the past. So about a month ago, I was in Daniel chapter 10, and we talked about that. Daniel 11, what we find today, is happening in succession with what we already looked at in Daniel chapter 10. And last time, when we were in Daniel 10, we saw a heavenly visitor who Daniel said was, appeared above the river... And, and who many believe was a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus who was there to tell him what, uh, what was to come. We know about this point that Daniel is an old man. He's been in exile for 70 years. We know that the exiles after those years of Babylonian captivity, they've been released to return to the homeland. And we know that the first waves of returners were opposed and that the rebuilding efforts were halted And that caused great discouragement to Daniel and those who were still left in Babylon. And with the turmoil and uncertainty of that as the backdrop, Daniel received that prophecy about what was to happen to his people in the coming days. And when I first read this chapter, I was met with the same emotional feelings as when I sit down to read the technical manual for my dishwasher. Right? (laughs) It was fairly confusing with all these talks of the northern kings and the southern kings, the clashes and the battles and the, the daughters being offered and the strong arms not being withstood. And so this morning we're going to take, once again, an overview approach. It seems the most helpful. It seems the least exhausting. And as you read through the 11th chapter of Daniel, you'll quickly see that you have to take an overview approach because that's what we're dealing with. Almost four centuries of history contained here. And it looks like a running summary of wars and conflicts. And I've arranged my thoughts this morning uh, in a sermon title called uh, Centuries of Conflict. Because these conflicts come to us through a series of prophetic um, visions or prophetic explanations about specific kingdoms and kings. So let's begin. The first thing we're going to see is that Daniel receives prophecies about Persia. Persia, the empire that he's serving at the time. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, because remember, if you remember, 11.1 really goes with the previous chapter. 11.2, now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Okay, okay. So the vision begins in the time that Daniel occupies and it makes reference to four kings. Three more kings shall arise and a fourth. So whatever's happening in Daniel's time, add four kings. That's what he's telling them to. After these four kings of Persia, we know that the Greek empire under Alexander is going to rise and their four generals will come to power. And then two of those sections, the Ptolemies, who are the Egyptian, the kings of the south, and the Seleucids, the Syrians, the kings of the north, they will come into focus specifically because they are not the only kingdoms of the world at this time, but they're closely connected to Israel, which finds themselves in the misfortunate place of being stuck between two warring kingdoms. And they're walking through their backyard for 400 years beating each other up. And so they are constantly embroiled in this conflict even though they have no real desire to be embroiled in this conflict. So these three more kings. Well, you remember at Daniel's life, Cyrus was ruling. The three kings, history history would tell us these three kings would be Cambyses, Smyrdas, and Darius. And then a fourth king of Persia would arise. That's Xerxes I. He was richer and greater than the others. He was like the the pinnacle of the Persian kingdom. And at that point, likely because Xerxes made uh, made an aggressive run at Greece, at that point he stirred up the nations against Greece. Now, this isn't anything new, right? We've, we've seen multiple visions already in the book of Daniel. They haven't been described as kings. They've been described as animals. Remember the lopsided bear? It was the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember the, the ram and the goat, right? They, we've already seen this stuff happening. What's happening in 11 is further detail from the imagery that we've already gotten in previous chapters, so if you weren't paying attention, you're going to get really lost right about now, okay? You might want to go back and read through some of Daniel uh, this week in case I completely lose you here. So the first thing he does, that, that's one chapter. That's, I mean, that's one verse. Four kingdoms, four reigns in one verse. Secondly, he makes prophecies concerning Greece. Look at verse 3 and 4. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. This is the kingdom of Greece. Again, we've already looked at this a number of times. We know that from the vision of the statue, from the vision of the bear and the leopard, from the vision of the ram and the goat, this is the empire of Greece that is supposed to follow the Persian Empire. And Alexander is that great horn. Alexander is that great ruler and leader. He is the great king of this empire. He comes to power early. He takes the entire known world by the time he's 32 years old and then he abruptly dies. And as he he dies, his four generals, his kingdom is split into four kingdoms. But not to his children. They're murdered. His wives and relatives, all of those are taken. The generals who were serving him, they split up the kingdom into four satrapies and they are leading in his place. These four horns rule in his place. Interesting. Don't you think that volumes and volumes have been written about Alexander the Great? I mean, his his name is Alexander the Great and here he's contained in a verse, right? You can take entire courses of history in college about the conquest of the Greek empire And all that occurred under his rule and reign, all of the terror that he inflicted, all the power and the wealth and the might that he grabbed for himself, all of it is contained in a few short words. There's a lesson in there for us, and worldly conquests and the kingdom that we're building in this world, that in the end, only the things that are empowered by Christ and done in his name will stand. We need to be careful if we think too highly of ourselves. But that's not really the point. Now we're getting into the meat and potatoes of this passage. Because we're getting through Persia, getting through Greece. Now now we have what's left. And now it gets really, really fun. He offers prophecies concerning Egypt. Egypt. Well, you'll say, "Well, it doesn't say Egypt." No, that's the kings of the south. The Ptolemies. Ptolemy was one of the one of the generals under Alexander. He took the portion of the empire that was in Egypt and northern Africa. So, Ptolemy, southern king. Think Egypt. Southern in that it's south of Israel. It might not be south of other places. It's just south of Israel. And then the northern king, or think Syria, the Seleucid. Seleucus was one of the generals. So the, there actually were four generals, but these two are the ones that God in his wisdom is focusing on because these two tell the story of how they affected Israel and God's people over the next 400 years. And what we have in the next 15 verses here is a broad history of the ongoing conflicts that occurred between these two specific divisions of the Greek Empire. The kings of the south, the Ptolemies, the Egyptians, and the kings of the north, the Seleucids, the Syrians. And poor Israel, stuck in the middle. Now, it should be noted that from chapter 2 to chapter 20, we are looking at 355 years. That's a whole lot of ground to cover in 18 verses. That's 18 verses to tell a story older than the history of our nation. 355 years ago was like 1665. Just imagine what was going on around the 1660s in world history. The Great Plague was hitting England Ravaging London until in 1666, the fire of London helped to decimate the population of vermin that were carrying it. 70,000 were killed in a week under the Great Plague. New Amsterdam, a fun upstart colony in the New World, was renamed New York by the English... And the colony of New York, or the province of New York, passed a law in that year guaranteeing religious freedom for Protestants. Ironic, don't you think? Somebody should remind our esteemed governor that we already have that freedom. Robert Hooke, an English natural philosopher, was using a phenomenal new machine called a microscope, and he found something that he called cells present in cork and in living plants. The London Gazette, the oldest running newspaper in the world, was published as the Oxford Gazette. And a guy named Isaac Newton was still conducting experiments. He discovered through the use of a prism something he called white light. Now imagine trying to give a summary of the important events that have occurred in a place just like, we'll just say one place, New York. And let's just, put, let's just put maybe like the Hudson Valley. Let's say, let's try 355 years of history from, from Manhattan to Albany. Can we, can we communicate in 18 verses all the most important happenings of 355 years of history just in that region? Any of you study history? Very difficult. You have to take a flyover view. We don't have a choice. So much is happening here, but what is being revealed is incredibly important to communicate God's purposes. And God's purposes always center around His people, His nation, and what's going on there and what is being set up there in His nation. So Israel is sandwiched between these two, often the site of their conflict. And eventually the northern kingdom, Syria, the Seleucid kingdom, would give rise to a guy named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. That little horn that we talked about earlier in chapter 8, the one who would bring upon upon God's people great trial and persecution. All of the events leading up to that, the significant events, are foretold here. But, But it should be noted that That some would say that if you're going to read the 11th chapter of Daniel, you should have a a good world history companion with you. So that as you read, you can check the events of history to help connect the dots. Because there's multiple kings of the north referenced here. Multiple kings of the south. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to go real fast. And hopefully you can see what's going on. In verse 5, we have a king of the south that he's gonna be strong, but one of his princes will be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. This is Ptolemy I. Soter was his name, and the first Seleucid king, Nicator. The king of the south, Ptolemy, he was one of Alexander's generals. The prince that's referenced is another general, a lesser general under Alexander. He came to serve under Ptolemy but eventually returned to the northern kingdom and took his territory and it grew. He controlled more territory than even Ptolemy I. His authority shall be a great authority. It was greater even than a Ptolemy's. In verse 6, we have a guy named Ptolemy II, Philadelphus. I love this guy already. And Antiochus II, Theos. All right, Ptolemy is the Egyptians, Seleucid's Antiochus, northern kings in Syria. In an arranged political marriage, Ptolemy II, the southern king, offers his daughter, Berenice, to Antiochus II, the northern king. So far, so good. Trying to seal an alliance. But Antiochus had a problem. He was already married to an angry woman. And hell hath no fury like a woman scorned Or a woman forced to invite a new wife into their marriage. So his wife saw to it that Antiochus, Berenice, and their child were all killed, and their power did not last. Now look at verse 8. What does it say? He shall carry off, um, I'm sorry, verse 7. From a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. Okay, so Berenice's brother is one from her roots, Ptolemy the Ptolemy III. You are Gedes was his name. That's not nearly as cool as Philadelphus. And so Lucas the Second is in in line here. So what happened is Berenice's brother, who the woman who was killed, the, the the daughter offered in a political alliance, her brother comes to power, Ptolemy III, and he's going to uh, exact vengeance. So he goes and he captures the Syrian city of Antioch, the capital, and carries off the gods and the vessels. Sounds a lot like what the Babylonian king did in Jerusalem. Captured Jerusalem and, Jerusalem and took the sacred vessels with him. Well, that's what happened here. That doesn't sit well with the northern kingdoms. So when, Ptolemy IV, or the, when Antiochus III comes to power... He's known as Antiochus the Great in verses 10 through 19. He is a northern king, a Seleucid king. He's called the Great because of his military conquests. And he's an important figure because under his reign, Palestine fell under Syrian control. Under his reign, under Antiochus III, Palestine was occupied by the northern Kingdom. So the southern kingdom, in verse 11, launches a counterattack against Antiochus III and a great clash of military power that includes 143,000 troops total and, interestingly enough, I wish I could see this, 175 elephants. (laughs) I don't know how you do that, but dang, that sounds cool, doesn't it? Like, please, I want to see a bunch of elephants going at it. That would be so cool. So... 175 elements. What happens is, Ptolemy IV, the king of the south, wins. But look at verse 12. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. He got proud. He shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. In his pride and his arrogance, as it often happens, he begins to exalt himself and kill and slaughter people, but it says he won't last. He won't last Starting in verse 13, the, the kings of the south are no longer the stronger empire but the kings of the north are. Antiochus III, the great, that northern king, he attacks the kingdom to the south when the king dies and Ptolemy V, who is about five years old, was appointed to be king. He's really smart. He said, we have a kindergartner leading the country. Now's a good time. Let's go attack it. In verse 14, some of the Israelites actually rebel and they fight against Egypt, siding with Antiochus the Great. But they will fail. In verse 15, the general of the southern army engages the Syrian army At a city near Philippi, and they were soundly defeated. Now Antiochus has control over Palestine, and the beautiful land is in the possession of the northern kings, setting the stage for the rise of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And now you understand why we have all this kings of the north and kings of the south business. It gets us to here. Antiochus, the king of the north, forced peace on the southern kingdom. He seals the alliance with the gift of his daughter named Cleopatra. Not that Cleopatra, a different one. But unfortunately for him, Cleopatra loved her new husband more than her old man. And she turned on Antiochus the Great and actually fought with the Ptolemies against him. Quite embarrassing. In verse 18 through 19, 19 describe the end of Antiochus the Great. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands. He shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own hand, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. And here, Antiochus the Great, described by his military might and wonder, meets an end just like every other earthly king. Giving rise to Seleucus IV, who was known in history as Philippator, the Philippator. That sounds like a... If I, was, if, I was, if I was coming up with biblical transformer names, he would be the leader of the Decepticons. <laughs> Philippator. And he would have superpowers that I'll talk about later. All right. All, what's all that? All that to say this. Hundreds of years of history contained in those passages describe the wars of the kings of the south, Egypt, and the kings of the north, Syria. And Israel's stuck in the middle. And now the time is right. The northern kingdom is occupying Palestine. And Daniel receives a prophecy concerning Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We've talked about him before. This is the real climax of this passage. This highlights the arrival and ascension of the most wicked king the world has ever known, who mercilessly persecuted God's people. He wasn't the rightful heir to the throne, as we find, he seized control. Through trickery. And although he was attacked again by the southern armies, they fell before his strength. That's what 22 and 23 tell us. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broke him, even the Prince of the Covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, he shall become strong with a small people. He took over a small empire and became great. Then he attacks Egypt's richest provinces in verse 24. But look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They're going to war against each other. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. This great conflict is occurring. These two kings have set their hearts against one another to war. They're they're deceptive towards one another. They're trying to uh, politicize this thing, to maneuver. But... It's not going to matter because there's an appointed end, he says. And it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Verse 30, at the end of verse 30 to verse 35, we get to the real point of this climax here. After being turned back by the Romans during a trip into Egypt, which is a great story, by the way, Antiochus IV Epiphanes is leading the charge to attack Egypt, but he is met by Roman forces. And the rising Roman Empire, which is the next empire in the statue, right these four kingdoms are the last vestige of the Greek Empire. After the Greek Empire rises, the Roman Empire, according to prophecy, and history, Antiochus is coming to attack Egypt, and he's met by a general of the Roman army who has taken up the cause of the Ptolemies to fight with them. And he confronts Antiochus, and he basically says, Turn around, because if you don't, you declare war on the Roman Empire, and we won't stop until it's finished. And then he does something really cool. He draws a big circle around Antiochus where he stood in the sand, and he said, You have to make your decision before you step out of that circle. Choose right now. What's it going to be? Are you going to leave or are you going to declare war on the Romans? Well, he knew, his, he knew the strength of the Romans and he knew the, uh, that they would soundly defeat him. So he chose not to fight them, but that humiliated him. And Antiochus IV Epiphanes turned his humiliation back on the people of God in rage. His greatness was questioned. He was humbled in the eyes of the world, and as often happens with egomaniacal dictators, he found something that made him feel strong again. So he unleashed fury and rage on God's people, slaughtering them, thousands of them, He ceased the worship in the temple in 167 BC, which is described in verse 31. And we we have the record of the abomination of desolation, where he entered into the Holy of Holies and offered the blood of swine, pigs, on the altar of God. The, The temple was unclean. He made false promises to further corrupt apostate Jews. But even in that time, verse 32, there were those who knew God and stood firm. Even in the midst of all this chaos, verse 32, let's look at it tells us. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. That's the apostate Jews. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And action in this case was to take up arms in revolt against this godless king. But many of them were put to death. Many were slaughtered. Verse 35 describes the end of Antiochus' persecutions. Some of the wise shall stumble, so they may be refined and purified and made white. Until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. There's purpose in our suffering. There was purpose in the suffering for the people of God, that that they would be refined, purified, made white, that their holiness would be affected, that they would be sanctified, that they would be nurtured and grown, that their... Sometimes we feel like the, the fact that we face trial and persecution, the fact that our lives don't work the way we want, the fact that we're undergoing all kinds of discord and, and um, just uncomfortable circumstances, we feel like God is trying to punish us. The purpose of trial and suffering is to refine the people of God. Not to beat them down and bring them low, but to strengthen them and refine them to, so that we would be, have our perseverance um, strengthened that we would have our faith strengthened and then in verse 36 Daniel's vision changes and now he gives a prophecy concerning the end times there's a shift in content and historians will tell you that what comes next doesn't line up with what happened in Antiochus the IV's life and doesn't line up with what happened in the Roman Empire so we're now talking about something else something future Something at the time of the end. Multiple times in this passage we have seen that phrase, the appointed time. It's yet to be the time of the end. Now we're concerning the end times, that there is coming a day when the end of human history will be uh, unfolded before us. And what follows is in Antiochus IV, conservative scholars agree that the vision is moving to describe the end times and the person of the Antichrist, who is prophesied, you see Antiochus IV, with his quest for supremacy, with his hatred for the people of God, with his persecution of them, he serves for us as a picture of Antichrist. He's not the one, but he is like the one who is foretold in Scripture—that little horn of Daniel seven, the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians, the beast of Revelation chapter eleven through twenty, the most notorious tyrant who ever will live. And he, verse 36, he will, this, this king, this antichrist, he will set his heart to do what he pleases. He'll make great blasphemous boasts against the Lord until the time of God's wrath is complete. And during this time, God in his wisdom and in his holiness will pour out his judgment upon not only antichrist, but also all the wicked followers of this beast. And the antichrist will reject the religious convictions of his ancestors. He will turn away. From faithful teaching and the one beloved by women. Many believe this is a reference to the Messiah. In verse 38, he won't worship the God of his fathers, but will instead worship a new God, a God of military might and strength and power. And with the aid of that God, the military might, he's gonna crush all opposition to his kingdoms. And while it's not definitive exactly who the kings of the South and the North are now in verse 40, It's probably not just Syria and uh, Egypt anymore. Maybe confederations of armies, maybe new superpowers at the time. We're not even sure which nations are going to be strong enough to oppose Antichrist in that day. But what's, what's in clear view here is that Antichrist is attacked on both sides and enjoys victory. And in verse 41, he invades Israel. And he sets up his headquarters in Jerusalem. And he waits there for what the Bible refers to as the final conflict. There in the valley of Megiddo will be the setting for that battle of Armageddon. And there, Antichrist meets his end. Look at verse 45 of Daniel chapter 11. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. And he shall come to his end with none to help him. Well, he doesn't sound so much different than every other human king of every king- kingdom in this world, does he? For all his boasts and all of his rage and all of his war and his arrogance and pride, he still meets the same end as all the rest of them because all the kingdoms of this world will meet the same end. Even the ones we love. There is only one kingdom that is eternal. There's, one only ki- There's only one king that is good. And in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. All right. So now you had your global history lesson. What does all of that mean? It was confusing to Daniel. Right? Daniel's standing on the banks of the river. He's overcome. He's trembling. The guy says, no, get up. Here's an angel come to help you. Here, I'm going to make it easier. I'm going to make it clear. And Daniel's like, that's what you gave me? That's supposed to be clear? That's supposed to be easier? What does it all mean? There are some really important things to pull out here. Here's here's the first thing that I think we need to keep in mind today. Daniel's God is trustworthy. The language may be a little confusing at first, for sure. But isn't it wild that you can literally grab a world history volume, lay it down next to Daniel chapter 11, and connect the dots between the prophetic vision (laughs) and real kings in real places who led real kingdoms and offered their real daughters in real alliances? Isn't it wild that the God of Daniel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that you and I serve through faith in Jesus Christ, his only son, that God is faithful and he's trustworthy. And if he makes a promise, he will keep it. And if he offers An edict, it will come to pass. And if he says there's an appointed time, then friends, there's an appointed time. He has never done anything to show us anything else. He's trustworthy. Even though it might be confusing at first, He's trustworthy. And why do I say that? I say that because many of you are trying today to to map out God's will and direction for your life. And whatever bit of revelation he's given to you is confusing to you. And you're wondering if the vision he's given you for your life, for your marriage, for your career, for your ministry, if it's ever going to come to pass... And it might be hard for you to understand in this moment, but what you need to remember is the character of the one who leads you is trustworthy. Lean into him. So that's one thing we see. His God is trustworthy. Two, his God is supremely wise. Infinitely wise. Sovereignly in control. Who else could predict with precision and clarity 355 years of the rising and falling of the kingdoms of this world? Only the God of Israel. Only Daniel's God. The gods of this world can't do that. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. The idols of this age, ears, but they don't hear. They were fashioned with human hands. Only the creator God, who upholds the world by the word of his power, only that God could predict what was going to happen and then in his wisdom bring it to pass. The God we serve is not like any other God. He is supremely wise, infinitely wise. And just, just by comparison, sake, that means he's wiser than you. He's wiser than me. The God we serve holds the world in his hands, the hearts of the king. So if he brings to pass events in your life, that in the moment you don't perceive as wisdom or gracious, because he's trustworthy and infinitely wise, slow down a little bit. Pump your brakes. Let's, let's rest just a second in his plan, in his goodness, in his wisdom, and his trustworthiness. Thirdly, There is an appointed time. There is an end coming to the drama of human history. It's as good as done. It has been marked and sealed and appointed by one who is infinitely wise and eternally trustworthy. It will happen. I don't know when that's going to be. No man knows the hour. We're not sure precisely when any of that is going to happen. But there is a time coming When all the kingdoms of this world will finally realize that they cannot stand against the strength of our God. In that time and in that end, all suffering and persecution and all the seen, the visible and the invisible enemies of God will be brought low before him. And those who know him Those who know God will find strength to stand with him through the fire and the storm of opposition and persecution and will have for them waiting a crown of righteousness and the blessing of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. There's an appointed time when the end of human history will come. And God in his grace sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his only son, to pay the price for our sin, to welcome us into the family of God, to secure for us a place in his kingdom so that appointed time doesn't have to frighten us, but we can look forward with joy and anticipation to that end when the the kingdom of God finally reigns supreme over the kingdoms of this world. Are you ready today? Are you prepared? Is your heart rested in Jesus? Have you trusted him to be your salvation and your strength? This chapter is an interesting one to say the least. That's why I needed two weeks to get ready for it. I'm still confused. I still don't know what it all means. But here, here is a, a quote that I found from a really cool uh, commentator that I liked it, that summarized well the entire passage. Chapter 11 demonstrates that the ungodly kingdoms of this world will not endure, that trials purify the church and that the people of God will ultimately be delivered. The kingdoms of this world will not endure. Only the kingdom of God will stand forever. Trials purify Christ's church. They're not meant to discourage us. They're not meant to drive us away from Jesus. They're meant to drive us to him for strength and grace. And God uses them to strengthen us, to purify us, to sanctify us. And ultimately, those who know the Lord and stand with him, those will be delivered. Our deliverance through Christ is sure and protected. Our inheritance is being kept in heaven. It's imperishable. The things of this world, the moths, the rust, they can't can't touch it. It was secured by Jesus' death it was appointed to us through faith in his gospel and it is kept, by, kept for us by his resurrection power. The people of God will ultimately be delivered. Be of good cheer, friends, when you face trials of many kinds. They're growing your faith. They're strengthening your witness. You are shining brighter in this day through the power of the gospel in you. We will ultimately be delivered. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word and its power this morning and its challenge. Thank you that we get to wrestle with it. Thank you that even when we don't understand all of it, Lord, you still make it clear and plain what is most important, what is most central to us. And we know that that only comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher today. We have needed you. Lord, I pray that as we continue to gather here this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged by these truths that we've found today, that you are sovereignly, supremely in control, that your word is trustworthy, that you're faithful, that ultimately those who know you and stand with you, we will be delivered. The kingdoms of this world cannot stand against your strength, your wisdom, your might, your power. God, you are faithful Faithful to bring about the strength of your kingdom. Faithful to bring about the deliverance of your people. Faithful to strengthen their witness in trial and persecution and sickness and illness. Faithful, God, to give them wisdom and discernment in their confusion. You are faithful. Lord, we as your people have seen your faithfulness over and over and over again in the book of Daniel, throughout the Old Testament, into the new and in our own lives. So help us look forward forward to the future with confidence because we believe, God, that you can do it because we've seen it in our, our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.